Well, this month, you may have heard that the D.C. government uh, voted to rename Columbus Day holiday, the Columbus Day holiday, to Indigenous Peoples Day as a recognition of the contributions of Indigenous peoples to North America prior to European colonization. For many Indigenous peoples, the land was a gift, and land in its abundance was a gift from the Creator to be shared by all. Now, many of our staple diet items, I don't know if you're aware of this, were actually derived from uh, and shared from our indigenous peoples, like corn and potatoes and tomatoes, beans, squashes. These are all part of our American diets, including the derivatives like high fructose corn syrup and everything associated with that. Indigenous peoples share their agricultural practices with the settlers, but also their medicines that help them address their, their scurvy and their needs as they arrived here, and their knowledge they shared freely with those who arrived. Even the form, I just discovered this as I was researching this, even the form of our government today is influenced by indigenous peoples. Benjamin Franklin said that the idea of how our federal government shares its responsibilities with the state governments was actually uh, derived from the Iroquoian League of Nations. When these new foreigners with pale skin arrived on the the shores of North America, many indigenous people groups welcomed them warmly, but only to have their hospitality and their land taken advantage of because they were viewed as less than human. Not all was perfect on either both sides, but I want to highlight how the many indigenous people, people groups viewed the use of resources much differently from our Western ideal of individual property ownership. They saw their resources as something to be shared for the benefit of all. They were an example of what it meant to be a generous community. Now, in this Thrive series that we're journeying through the book of Acts, we're looking at how the New Testament church thrived in their context and thrived for the benefit of the context that they were in. In today's passage, we're going to look at how the early church grew from this Jewish sect that became recognized that a distinct group of people had been transformed by Jesus Christ. And their generosity overflowed from that place. The early church um, was called to this, and, and so are we as the church today. We're called to be a community that's generous in relationship, a, a community that's generous in meeting needs, because we're a community that's generously led. We're called to be a a community that's generous in relationships, generous in meeting needs around us because we are generously led. Now we open up the verses in verse 19 where Luke, the author of Acts, reports some exciting developments in the early church. Because of persecution, many Jews have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire. In this case, they were told that they were spread out to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. One of those places is Antioch in what is now the modern-day Uh, town of Antakya, Turkey, near the Syrian border. Antioch played a significant role in the early uh, growth of Christianity, especially amongst the Gentile or non-Jew population. We're told in verses 19 and 20 that though the word originally spread amongst the Jews, they began to share about Christ with the Greeks. In this case, Luke is referring to Greeks as uh, as Greek-speaking Gentiles, those who weren't Jews. 
Now, these Jews who had been so transformed by the message and the life of Jesus began to do something uncharacteristic of Jews in the ancient Near East. They began to share their faith with those outside of their tribe and racial lines. In verse 20, we're told that some of these men from Cyrene and uh, Cyprus went to Antioch and began speaking also to Greeks as well, telling them the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a huge deal. Jews were likely a bit of an oddity in ancient Palestine. They, some, some of them in the wider culture probably would consider them as atheists because they didn't live in Jerusalem. They didn't really reflect these worship, uh, the, the active worship uh, expressions that most people expected. You know, as people living in the Roman Empire, they were expected to worship Roman Caesar, who demanded to be worshipped as God and as Lord. But they refused to do that. And they also refused to participate in pagan household uh, deity worship. Many households would have an idol inside their house uh, that they would worship and express their allegiance to. But Jews didn't do that because they believed that the place of worship was in Jerusalem, in the temple, worshiping the one God. So to most average Joes on the street, Jews would be, appear to be these nice but odd group of people who kept to themselves, who had some interesting food laws. They would only eat certain things and not eat other things. And they would also might appear to be a little bit lazy because they refused to work one day of the week. But this encounter of the good news of Jesus changed everything for them. They began to share their faith in this multicultural, multilingual environment of Antioch. At the time, Antioch was the third largest city in the entire Roman Empire, after Rome and after Alexandria in Egypt. It was a thriving, cosmopolitan, uh, crowded city of trade and of culture. And up until the Mongol conquest of the ancient Near East, uh, Antioch was the hub of travel, where travel, trade routes and ancient roads and shipping lanes would all converge. So like London or New York or Tokyo of our day, Antioch was filled with people from all walks of life. But this encounter with Jesus resulted in a generosity of relationships. Followers of Jesus were no longer exclusively Jews. The Antioch church was the first expression of their church that had both Jews worshiping together with non-Jews. Luke tells us that a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord as a result of this mission. Something new was happening in Antioch. Something new that required the attention of the elders in Jerusalem. A wall had been breached. A wall between Jew and non-Jew. And this wall was bigger than any other wall back then. This division was bigger than uh, the, the, the division between slave and free, or the division between male and female. They began reaching outside of their tribes because of this message of Jesus. You know, as we've been meeting new people since moving here, one of uh, the goals Julia and I have been starting to do is inviting people on our block over for dinner. And I got to admit, as you initially meet people, there are those that you naturally connect with because you share more of a past history or experience or education. Those, there are those that you look, maybe look more like you or have the same interests. And then there are those that you wouldn't have as much overlap with. There are two Christian households on our block. One of them belongs to a pastor. And that was an easy connection for us. They invited us over for dinner in the first few months we were there, and we enjoyed our time together. 
But Julie and I have been looking for other people to connect with, people we haven't spent as much time with naturally. We invited a gay couple, one of our neighbors, over for dinner a couple of weeks ago, and we had a wonderful evening together hearing each other's stories, and we're looking forward to the next time we can get together. This past week, as I was out in the back alley moving our garbage bins back into the yard, I bumped into our next-door neighbor, who is an African-American, and she's a caregiver for her mom struggling with dementia. She was concerned about whether her mom would be willing to go out of the house when we extended the invitation for her and her mom to join us for dinner. And I just said, well, hey, whatever works best for you and her, let's just see if we can make it happen. The invitation's always there. Julie and I are trying to reach out the side of the circles that we normally associate with. What are some of the ways that we can be generous in relationship, not just towards those who are like us, or who think like us, or who share the same values and beliefs. In light of God's generosity towards us, I invite you to consider how you can be intentional in sharing your community and friendships that you enjoy with those that may not be natural connections, because you may not cross paths or share the same backgrounds and values. Here's a test for you to try, maybe this week or the next Go and ride the metro if you don't ride the metro. Or when you're on the metro, take a look around and look at the people around you and see who are those people that you might be able to connect with naturally because you might share a similar background. And look at the people that you might not naturally connect with. And what would it look like for you to relate to them, to extend relationship to them, to find out what's going on in their lives instead of just writing people off? Now... Don't go ahead and talk to them unless there's an obvious door opening because that's kind of creepy to do on the metro, right? (laughs) But that's one way that we can begin testing how we can extend generosity in those places that we normally just feel comfortable with. The Antioch Church was not only known to be reaching across racial and cultural barriers, though. They were also first to respond to the famine in Jerusalem. In the last two verses, we're told the disciples, as they were able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And they did this by sending their gift with uh, the elders by Barnabas and Saul. The early church has always been characterized by its ministry to, to those with needs. You see, in the, early Roman, in the Roman Empire, 80 to 90 percent of the population lived in a rural agricultural economy, not in manufacturing, not in services. There really wasn't a middle class because wealth was based on land ownership, which was controlled by a small, wealthy class that would rent the use of their land uh, to workers or indentured slaves. And that resulted in tremendous inequality. Ninety percent of the population that lived in cities lived near or below the subsistence level. I mean, if we were in Living in a city like Antioch, nine out of ten of us would only make enough money, uh, make enough to live for the day with nothing more. Yet in the midst of this, the early church offered a remarkably relevant and meaningful method of connecting with the needs of people. The early church was known for its concern for the poor and sharing of resources with those in need. And the large growth of the church that is reported here wasn't just because they preached about Jesus is because they preached about a Jesus that made a difference in the lives of people each day. 
Unlike how spirituality in our modern uh, experience is viewed as a, an intellectual exercise to make us feel better about ourselves or to make us find meaning or, or find how we order our lives, the early church practiced, offered practical solutions to people's needs. Their church was recognizably making a difference in their community. Ignatius of Antioch, not the same as Ignatius of Loyola, was the first century bishop of Antioch. He was martyred and was, has traditionally been known to be discipled by the Apostle John. He wrote a series of letters that char- and characterized what heresy was. And he said, heretics are those, quote, who have no regard for love, no care for the widow or the orphan or the oppressed, of the bond or of the free, of the hungry or of the thirsty. You see, for Ignatius, heresy wasn't just an intellectual ex- or a theological exercise about what belonged in the Bible, what didn't belong in the Bible, what belonged in the Christian tradition, or what didn't belong in the Christian tradition. It was deeply practical. Heresy was reflected in how we care for the most needy around us. Rodney Stark writes in The Rise of Christianity and about how Christians were a movement that revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships to cope with many urgent urban problems. They were the front of the line, not the government, not, uh, not some nonprofits. The church was first to meet the needs. He writes this, To cities filled with the homeless, impoverished, and strangers, Christians offered practical help. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christians provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christians offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christians offered effective nursing services. Early Christians ministered as a transformative movement that arose in response to the misery and the chaos and the challenges of people living in the Roman Empire. That was God's call and mission for the church back then, and I believe it's still God's call for us today. So I went back and looked at WCF's budget from 2018, and I said, God, are we reflecting these kinds of values? So from our undesignated offerings, that's all the general receipts that come in, in 2018, we gave 28% of that income towards supporting missions locally and abroad. And we've also made one of our significant resources, this building available to, minist- to a ministry reaching at-risk youth, at least up until this year. Because of your financial generosity, a number of ministries are making a difference in the lives of our neighbors of, uh, on top of the missions initiatives abroad. So many of us, we, we put together soup and stew ingredients for Central Union Mission that supports those unhoused neighbors in the city. And many of us have been going to Little Lights for race literacy class, but also going to doing some reading programs for at-risk kids in public housing. And just a block away, we've been supporting Capitol Hill Pregnancy Center, who is supporting families with ki- unexpected uh, pregnancies. But I'm not telling you all this so that we can feel good about ourselves, because that's a bit sick, about how much we are supporting missions. We're thankful for that. We're, we, we should be proud of that. But here's the thing. I wonder what it would look like if our generosity 
to not just be known by people sitting in here, but for people to know outside of this building to say that, wow, WCF is making a difference in our neighborhood. WCF is making a difference in our city. I heard uh, a couple of reports, you know, they fly up on, on your Facebook social media feed about a couple of churches who have been erasing medical debt for their neighbors. You know, medical debt in America is sinking tons of households. And so I reached out to that organization when I read about it and, and found out how we can contribute. We haven't decided this. I just wanted to find out. For a pennies on the dollar, we can make a difference in the lives of many people. Their medical de- debt can be forgiven, wiped out, completely gone. Did you know $15,000 raised will erase $1.5 million of medical debt for our neighbors? So if you're investment savvy, where else can you put a dollar in and get $100 of value back immediately, except you don't benefit, someone else does? Can you imagine that? Imagine what kind of story people would say. It's like, wow, these, this community makes a difference because they care about us. Now, I've talked a lot about just financial generosity, but what about generosity with our time and with our efforts and with, that impacts the community around us? I wonder what our impact might be in this surrounding community if you and I, who are part of this WCF community, began to engage in meeting the needs of those around us together. As we seek the flourishing of the city, especially the parts of the city that don't have new condos and pop-up uh, you know, row homes and nice and cool restaurants. What would people begin saying about WCF and other Christian churches here in the city as a whole? Do we want to be known as a building? Or do we want to be known as a community of just nice people, but irrelevant to most people? Or do we want to be known as a faith community that makes a difference and will be missed if we weren't around? That's my prayer. As the deacons consider programs for the following year and as we begin asking God for a vision for the surrounding community, let's prayerfully ask together what we can do that helps Jesus' name be known in tangible ways around us in the city. And we need everyone on board to see this happen. And particularly, I'm hoping to see a team of people passionate about missions locally begin praying and reaching out to see where God would have us express our generosity in meeting needs around us. If that's you, email me, get connected, let's talk and let's pray and let's dream about what God is calling us to. And this leads us to the final movement. The power of the early church to be generous in relationships and generous in meeting needs was because they were generously led. Luke tells us that as Saul and as Barnabas spent a a year of teaching and discipling the church in Antioch, it was in Antioch that these Jesus followers first became known as Christians. Verse 26, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. You know, in America, we often uh, identify ourselves by the tribes that we belong to. I'm a conservative, or I'm a progressive, I'm an evangelical. I'm a Christian, or I'm a Catholic, or I'm Jewish, or I'm a Nats fan, future World Series winner, right? And it's our self-identification that distinguishes us from other groups of people. But in the case of the Jesus Jesus followers of Antioch, it's not a self-identifying name. It's more likely that this name was given to Jesus followers in Antioch by unbelieving people 
the tense is passive. It didn't say that they called themselves Christians. It says they were called, inferred by others, Christians. Why? Likely, a big part of this clear identification by others outside of their tribe, outside of their sect, wasn't because they, they had a big, the biggest building in the town square. It wasn't because they were live-streaming their services on the Internet and posting ads on social media. It, was, it wasn't because they had purchased a cable network television and broadcast their, what they were doing all over the world. It was because they were known as a community that cared for others. They were known as a community that was generous in relationships. Jews who were once meeting along their, themselves were now meeting together with non-Jews. They were sharing meals together and serving together. What was going on in this church, people would ask. The Antioch church, didn't we hear that they sent a bunch of money to another group in Jerusalem to meet the needs of those in famine? Why would they do that? Because the famine's going to hit us. Why wouldn't we take care of ourselves first? But the church didn't do that. They were known for their generosity. You know, in political circles, there are a group of people known as Reaganites who are characterized by their support and leadership in the policies of President Ronald Reagan. I'm not saying this because I'm support or, or whatever. It's just an example. It's a nickname given by others because of this particular group's values and actions and policies that they advocate for in light of this leader that they respect. You know, similarly, the disciples of the Antioch church were called Christians by others exactly because of the kind of impact that they were having on the city. The term Christian comes from the word Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah, or God's anointed king. The followers of Jesus were thinking and speaking in such a way that they were thought of as the king's people. They were messianists, or Christians, as we're told here. The disciples of Antioch became known for their actions, but were characterized by who they saw as their leader. And that was Jesus, the Christ the one who lived and died and rose again. These Christians had experienced the generosity of God in Christ. And so they now lived in response to this amazing gift of forgiveness and of salvation and this amazing offer of serving others together with Jesus the King and in his mission to meet the needs of those around them and to see justice flow where, like a stream where it does not already. The King's people were faithful reflections of their King Jesus. I once attended a conference in, a, in another city, and I stopped by a local burger joint for lunch and began chatting it up with the person behind the, the bar, uh, who happened to be the owner. And when he asked us about the conference we were attending, I was hesitant. I was hesitant to tell him, well, we're here for a Christian conference, because you never know how, might, how people might respond. Because the term Christian, or the term evangelical, has become so politicized in our culture. We don't know what kind of automatic assumptions people make when they hear that term. Unfortunately, to be identified as a Christian in many circles has negative connotations. And in this interaction, though, it turned out to be a positive one. He said something that caught my ear. He replied, saying, Oh, I too am a follower of Jesus. I thought this brought clarity in identifying who we are truly led by. For many today, to identify as a Christian or a Catholic or a Jew or a Buddhist, these are often just 
cultural categories or traditions that we might identify with. They don't always signify the degree to which someone is truly led by Jesus or whatever uh, founder of that faith tradition is. What about for us? Have we really come to know the generosity of, of Jesus in a way that causes us to respond with the same generosity towards those who are around us? C.S. Lewis writes, uh, C.S. Lewis is a British novelist and theologian. He says, every Christian is to be a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. The whole purpose of being a Christian is simply nothing else than to be little Christs, followers of King Jesus, God's anointed one. Do we live like that? Because of Jesus, we can extend generosity across social and cultural boundaries that we would not otherwise cross. And because of Jesus, we can extend generosity in our finances, in our time, towards those in need. We are generously led by the one king who steps down from his throne to bear our burdens, to pay the price of our sin and our brokenness, and to offer a new way of living. Even more, though, my question for you is, do you live like Jesus is the king of your life? Or do you simply live like Jesus is a good advisor to you when you're in need, or a good counselor that will listen to you when you have problems? Either Jesus is king, or he's not. Either Jesus has say in your life over every single circumstance and issue, or he does not. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German pastor and theologian, writes in The Cost of Discipleship about how followers of Jesus came to be known by their ministry to those suffering from a flu epidemic. He said that they have an irresistible love for the downtrodden, the sick, the wretched, the wronged, the outcast, and all who are tortured with anxiety. They go out and seek all who are enmeshed in the toils of sin and guilt. He's saying that Christians here were known because of their identification and service of those who were most vulnerable. And he says that in order that they may be mercifully cast away the most priceless treasure of human life, their personal dignity and honor. For their only honor and dignity they know is their Lord's own mercy, to which alone they owe their very lives. That's the kind of Jesus that has invited us into relationship with him. So I invite you, WCF, with the help of the Holy Spirit and under the leadership of Jesus the King and our big brother, let's be this generous community that makes a difference in the city around us for the glory of God. Amen. Are you generous?